Welcome to our teaching today, where Christ's Word is the center of our world. We are about to listen to the undiluted Word of God from the throne of grace. We're just going to go over some things we already know about the armor of God. The armor of God, how many of us are blessed on Sunday? Wow. You know, Pastor Phil has been dropping some very powerful bombs, but he says it in very light ways. Right, so in, in, in the meeting, I can't remember what meeting it was, that he said, okay, it was a prayer meeting last week. He said, one thing he said, that the destiny of the believer is what? To be conformed to Christ. That is our only destiny. You know, when we talk about destiny changes, <laughs> Lord, fulfill my destiny. All of that, all that confusion about your destiny is taken away when you know that your destiny is to be conformed to Christ. Amen? And that is the only destiny, actually, that we have as believers. Every other thing is our wishful thinking and our ability to just explore the abilities that God has given unto us and the dominion that we have over the world. But the thing that God has predestined for us is that we will be conformed to Christ. Amen? Amen. And then on Sunday, he dropped another bomb for me, which was really powerful. And that is that the only, one of the major things, when we talk about spiritual attack, one of the main, what spiritual attack is actually, one of the most powerful attacks we can ever have as believers is the thoughts or the thinking or the idea that God doesn't love you anymore. When we begin, any, when any experience begins to question the love of Christ, the love of God in your life, that is the greatest or the biggest spiritual attack you can ever get. Amen. Uh, we're going to be um, looking at a bit more, slightly different perspective on the armor of God today. Um, and since I know Dr. Phil would be looking at a lot of the armors. So I decided not to talk about any of the armors. So I said talk about the other perspective, so which is the devil's side. <laughs> so there is the armor of God. Okay? Now the anchor scripture, Ephesians six what? Ephesians six, I believe it's twelve or ten. We can start from there. Ephesians 6.12. Okay, so it says, Put on the armor of God that you may be able to what? Stand against the wiles of the devil. So we have, so just think about it. There are two matches. There is a match going on, okay? On one side is what? The armor of God. And on this other side, the opposing side is what? The wiles of the devil. Okay, so we're going to be looking at the wiles of the devil today. What is this? What are these wiles that we are warring against? What are, what are the wiles of the devil? Okay? Um, and before we start looking at the wiles, I would like to lay a foundation about this enemy. So we're going to be studying our enemy today. <laughs> Amen. So, the wiles of the devil. So, the first of all, who is, before we talk about his weapon, we need to know him. Okay? The devil. So, we, from our understanding and from our teaching so far, we have understood the armor of God. And the armor of God is defined by God himself because it is his armor. So, we can't talk about his armor without talking about him. Okay? So, you can't even use his armor without knowing him. So his armor is a representation of him. Amen? Same thing. So, wiles of the devil. So who is the devil? This devil that is causing so much havoc in the Christian world that we speak so much about, that we pay so much attention to. Who is he? And what is he about? Okay, so... The first and only point, I mean, in the, in the discussion of this battle between 
the armor of God and the words of the devil. I only have one point to define who the devil is. Just one. And that is, the devil has no power. I want us to, I want that to sink in. By the grace of God, by the end of today, I want, us, I want this to come to the fullness of our understanding. The devil has no power. So how is he, why is it that he seems to be so successful <laughs> in this battle? <laughs> he seems to be so successful. He has no power. So I'm going to read a couple of scriptures to begin to guide us. Psalms chapter 2, Psalm, Psalm 2 from verse 1. Um, let's just look at that and to start this conversation. So the scripture says, Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The king, okay, sorry, so sorry to cut first, continue for Of course, we know that this is a prophecy as to something that will happen in the future. So this is a prophecy, actually, that David is prophesying. So it says, why do nations rage and people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his what? Anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in, okay, I don't know how to pronounce that word, derision. Correct me if I'm wrong, please. Then he shall break, sorry, then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in, the, in, his, deep, in his deep displeasure. Verse 6, yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. And the ends of the earth for your possession. Verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. I like this one, verse 13. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. And you perish in the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little. Last verse. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Hallelujah. Now, what is the picture of this passage we've just read. Some very key things. The first verse started with, why do nations rage and the people plot in vain? So it says that the kings, the rulers of the world, the rulers of darkness, this is, of course, a prophecy to the cross. Okay, this is the people, the rulers of darkness, plotting to destroy Jesus. It says they have a plan um, and the ruler take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Okay? So his anointed, of course, we know is Christ. So, the beauty of this, it says on the, in verse 7, it says, I will declare a decree. Set my king on my holy hill of Zion. What does that sound like? Set my king. You have set, yes, I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare a decree. The Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. 
set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Today, I have begotten you. What does that tell us? It is in the, of course, the king was set on the holy hill, okay? Which is a symbol of what? The cross, Calvary. Now it says, today, I have, you are my son. Today, I have begotten you. So he was at the death, burial, and the resurrection of Christ. Is we understand we are begotten. Okay? So it is the, the, the giving okay, of Christ in his resurrection that this victory came about. So it says, immediately after it says, today I have begotten you. What does the next verse say? Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. So the dominion, so the first of all, it started with the nations raging and plotting against Christ. Then this, the discussion switches. It says, today, on that resurrection, I have begotten you. And then he says, ask of me and I will give you the nations. So that the nations, the principalities, the powers, the rulers, that were plotting against Christ. He says, ask of me and I will give them to you. As your inheritance. Let's see one more scripture, or two more scriptures. Let's see um, 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20, 21. Um, okay, there is also an antitype which now saves us, the baptism. Okay? Not the renewal of the faith of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. Which is again, it says, through the resurrection of Christ, right? Our baptism, our new, the new birth. Verse 22. It says, who has gone into the heavens and has sat at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers have been what? Made subject. Have been made subject to him. Let's keep going. It says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. It says, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that what? Through death he might destroy him who what? Had the power of death. That is, it was very specific. That is what? The devil. Verse 15. And release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject. So, the first thing that we need to establish today, which is the foundation of this discussion about the devil and the battlefield, is that the devil has no power. The only power that he had, which was, as this verse 14 said, the power of death. This power of death has even been taken over from him. has been taken away from him. The devil has no power. I want it to sink in our minds because it's usually, it doesn't sink. <laughs> Especially when we face situations. It doesn't sink. Let it sink in our minds. The devil what? Has no power. Tell your neighbor, the devil has no power. He says he was made, Christ made a public spectacle. He disarmed what? Principalities and powers. He was disarmed. Entirely disarmed. So it's not a question. There is no question. There is, no, there is nothing. There is no discussion about it. Like, it's so clear and evident 
that the devil absolutely has no power. So how is it that so many people are still being tormented by the devil, in quotes, or being defeated by the devil? Why is the devil seeming so powerful these days? Why do we have to spend nights of fasting and prayer all nights? I remember those days in my secondary school. I don't know how we did it, but <laughs> we had this... My, my fellowship in secondary school, there was this pastor that came to join us. He was a teacher. He joined us. He was employed as a teacher, but he was a pastor. So he came to the fellowship and became like in charge of our fellowship and all that. So that, I can remember very vividly those periods. Like we had so many all nights. <laughs> so many all nights. There were so many demons in school, especially in girls. Especially in girls' hostel. <laughs> Up to the point that one of the nice videos, we had to go to the girls' hostel to have the meeting. I'm serious. <laughs> like, we will be going during the all nights, we'll be having prayer walks around the school, we'll be praying, we'll be going to different parts of the school, we we'll spend one hour here. We go to another part of the school. We spend another one hour casting. Ah, it was, it was a serious. Ah, it was crazy that period. And you just be seeing and imagining so many things. You, it was, it was crazy. And this is just in secondary school. You can imagine what's happening in so many other places. And we wonder why do. And funny enough. If you look at the Bible, there is nothing like that. <laughs> and then I've not, I didn't see anywhere in scriptures where they held meetings to cast out demons and pray and fast for devils. It's not, it's not, it's not, it's nowhere in the, in the Acts of the Apostles, <laughs> at least that we saw the lifestyle of the early church. Nothing like that. So where did we bring, where did we learn, <laughs> where did we learn it from? <laughs> so that is the first thing, when we understand this, that the devil has no power. So the fact that he has no power is as if, um, imagine a Barcelona prepare, has, is a match, it's set between Barcelona and TSP team. <laughs> no, we'll do well, though. we'll do well. Don't worry. We can match them. Let's say Barcelona and... Hmm. <laughs> what will be the mindset of the Barcelona guys? They will, they, will be tra- they will train, yeah, but they'll probably be... They will just be, they will probably just be knocking ball and having fun and getting ready for the match. That's it. <laughs> it's, it's a clear word, walkover. And that is a picture we must have. It says, if you read that verse, the scripture in Psalm 1, it said, kiss the son lest he be angry. <laughs> it means that, like, that was, that was a phrase, but we say, the, the we, we are the enemy to the devil. The devil is supposed to be afraid of us. He is afraid of us. We are not the ones that should be scared of the devil. Because we are, we, we've, he's been defeated, flat down. We are far above a much more a superior power than him. Amen? So that is the first thing one we need to establish today. I want to have locked in, in our understanding and in our minds that the devil has no power. Um, then we see how does he now work? Okay? Um, okay, let's just read one more scripture to conclude this. First John chapter 3, verse 8. 
says, He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this what purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might what? Destroy the works of the devil. This is the reason why Jesus came. So, for us to still acknowledge and hold to high esteem the works of the devil means we don't understand why Jesus came. Because the purpose he came was to destroy the works of the devil. If the works of the devil is still evident and is still held in, we are still acknowledging it in higher, we are still putting it as a monument before us. It means that Jesus Christ has failed because that means the works of the devil was not destroyed. It says he came to destroy the works of the devil. Hallelujah. Now, how does the devil work? <laughs> what are these wiles that the devil now uses to attack and to fight and to be in this battle with Christians and with the world? Okay, so these are the wiles of the devil. There are four that I have, I mean, it's not limited, there are four that I have pointed out. First, I'll just list them and then we'll just run through them quickly. First is deception. One, deception. Two, temptation to sin. Three, snares or circumstances that threaten your faith. And then, lastly, the bondage of fear. So, these are the three or four wiles, I would say, of the devil that he uses. So, the first is deception. What does it mean? So, why... Where the more, why, I'm look, why we're spending time on this, the more we understand these wilds, the more we're able to identify and stand against them. The more we know when it's coming. Because why it would hold, why it would work on you is if you don't know <laughs> it's coming. Amen? If you're not able to identify it. So it says deception. Let's see how the devil uses deception. John chapter 8, verse 44. It says, You are the father, so you are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. Because what? There is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. So, what is a lie? <laughs> this is a very... We know... Okay, first question. What is truth? So, what is lie? Lie is the opposite of truth, right? So if truth, so let's do a simple math. If truth equals Jesus and lie is opposite of truth, so what is the opposite of Jesus? <laughs> huh? Any <laughs> Antichrist, so anything that is what? Not Christ. So when but how would the, the reason why lie has prevailed is because you don't know the truth. If you don't know the truth, you will not know which one is a lie. If you don't know him, you would, anything that is like him would, would be him to you. <laughs> Anything that sounds like him, to you, it would be like him because you don't know him. 
The truth is Christ. For us believers, we must understand this. We must understand this, that the truth is, is Christ. He says, I am the way, the truth, truth, and the word, life. Now, when we have this understanding that the truth is Christ, and everything that we are in Christ, our identity in him, when we say who he is, I am, what he can do, I can do. Where he is, I am. What he has, I have. This is truth. When anything in your life suggests otherwise, it's what? It's a lie. And it is the work of the devil to what? Tell you lies. And do you know the beauty? The, the, do you know how powerful this is? Because when the Bible says, "Out of the abundance of your heart, the mouth speaks," and, the, and the, <clears throat> out of the heart flows the issues of life. So, to a large extent, what you recognize as truth becomes your what experience. What you believe and hold on to as truth will eventually play out as you were, your experience. So, I learned this one from my friend, my brother Tolu, from his book, um, the first one, The Person of the Holy Spirit. And he says, truth is prophecy. How is truth prophecy? When the Spirit of God reveals the truth of who you are to you, the more you see that truth, the more what you become. So, in a sense, that truth is a prophecy of who you are and who you will be. So that is why Christ, the Spirit, is also the Spirit of truth, the Spirit of prophecy. And that is why the testimony of Jesus is what? The Spirit of prophecy. Because the more you see him, the more you become like him. So how do you, if you want to see your future? <laughs> that is it. And again, we already know that our destiny, we have been predestined to be what? Conformed to the image of his son, from the foundations of the world. So anything that says otherwise is bringing another future to you. And by the time you begin to believe and align with that revelation or truth or now that lie, what happens? That is how the devil works. And that is why we have so many believers without knowing it, living a lie or experiencing the contrary of who they are in Christ Jesus because they have believed a lie. Amen? Amen. Say, I would not be deceived. Acts chapter 13, verse 10. Says, oh, and said, O oh, fool of deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you what? Enemy of all righteousness. You, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? <laughs> Let's go back to what was happening that he was talking about. So go back two verses. But Elimas the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood them seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Then Saul, who was who also called Paul, filled 
with the Holy Spirit looked intently at him. So then, well, so go back again. Eight. What was he trying to do? He says, for, but Elimas the sorcerer withstood them, what? Seeking to turn the proconsul away from the what? Faith. And then he goes on to, Paul, by the Spirit of God, rebuked him and said, you deceiver, son of the devil. He saw, Paul was able to see that what this man was trying to do was to pervert the straight ways of the Lord. So it's the work of the devil to pervert. So that's how he, he has no power. It's just to make you see, to make you look elsewhere, to pervert the truth. So that is why we cannot take for granted the teachings that we receive here. The diligence to keep our eyes focused on the truth. Because it is very easy to miss the truth. <laughs> because there are so many things that look like the truth. You know, the most successful products have the, the most counterfeits. <laughs> The products that are most successful, you will see so many versions of it, imitations. So it's even more difficult to identify. But how do you now know the original? So if you are an adept user, for example, if you're an adept user of an iPhone, you once you, if you hold an, an original iPhone and you hold a fake one, you would know. If you've been using the iPhone for a long time, you would know. So you would not know if you are not in tune, if you have not mastered the art of using. You would not know the truth if you are not accustomed to the truth. If the truth is not part of your life, if you are not constantly seeing him, if you are not constantly fellowshipping with him, it's like someone comes to you. You know, there is this movie, Face Off. If someone wears the mask of your spouse, and comes to you. <laughs> the person might get away with maybe the first day <laughs> deceiving you. But after a while, you know, is this you? <laughs> this is not you know something is off. And you be you just know something is off about this, about my spouse today. Or, you, you just know, or a friend of yours that you've, you've known for years, and then all of a sudden, the person, someone comes to, an imposter comes, you would know. Even if he's looking exactly the same. So, it takes us being accustomed to the truth to be able to detect lies. Because there are so many lies these days, everywhere. Lies from teachings, lies from experiences, Lies from circumstances, lies from everywhere. They will come at you, but your understanding and your being accustomed to the truth would help you stand against. Amen? The next one is temptation to sin. So, what does sin do, or what is sin to the believer? The Bible says we have the power over sin, right? He has destroyed, <coughs> we have overcome sin in him, we have overcome sin, the power of sin, the consequences of sin. But there is still the discussion of sin in the believer. So what is the impact Understanding our standing and the fact that our righteousness is of God, not of us, what then is the impact of sin on the believer? And is sin, does sin still have an impact, first of all? And if it does, what impact does it have? And why would the devil... That's the, next, that's the second major occupation of the devil, temptation. <laughs> 
Amen. He started, I mean, we see it in the life of Christ. So immediately he was baptized. What was the next thing? The devil led him to the wilderness to tempt him, right? With so many things. So what is the, how does sin affect the, the believer? A very simple illustration I like to give is Superman. Who knows? Who are, no, we all know Superman. Who has watched the real Superman movie, not the fake, fake ones? <laughs> okay, there is a Superman series. Uh, I've forgotten the, his name. Smallville, yes. So, there is Superman. There is, one, there is something that always affects Superman, that makes Superman weak. Kryptonite. What does Kryptonite do to Superman? Does he change him from being Superman? No. But what does he do to him? Just makes him unable to perform. Unable to show his superpowers. That is what sin does for the believer. So, and that is how the devil would keep and attack believers, tempting you to sin. Sin is our kryptonite. <laughs> because you will not, as a believer, function effectively if you are in sin. To God, sin will not affect, sin does, to God it doesn't affect, I mean, God has dealt with sin. So when he sees you, he sees Christ. So your sin does not change him, your sin does not make him answer you more or answer you less. Your sin does not make him love you more or love you less. What does it make you? From your own pers- from you to God, that is what is you that is affected by sin. Because you yourself, your faith, your ability to see clearly, <laughs> to see him clearly will be affected because you no longer have what we call a sound mind. Your mind is is full. <laughs> so you're not able to see him clearly and think clearly and perceive this in the spirit clearly. So, and when you're not able to see him clearly, when you're not able to be sensitive to the spirit, automatically you are what? Weak. You are unable to perform to the optimum potential that you are meant to as a believer. So if we see um, a couple of scriptures, um, okay, let's see some examples. So first is Judas, verse John 13. We'll be rounding up very shortly. John 13, verse 1, 2. So now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Wow, so, so awesome. And supper being ended, the devil, <laughs> again, this is how he works, having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. So how does temptation happen? The truth is, like this song, Slow Fade, by Casting Crowns. I believe that you see, when you see that someone, every temptation you fall for was actually not... <laughs> A quick stumble. <laughs> there was something in the heart somewhere that has been developing. So the Bible says he put it in his heart. He must have put that this tempt, betrayal of Christ in his heart a long time. And he just kept pondering on it until the hour. And he did it. Because it was planted in his heart. So Temptation, the why, how the devil works with temptation is just to plant seeds in our hearts. And then 
you will just plant it and leave you. If you don't weed it out, that seed will start growing. You by yourself. Because of, if you are watering, because you can, we can water the seed of the devil in our hearts. <laughs> by conversation with people, our interactions, the media we consume, what we hear every day, we are watering the devil's seed. <laughs> yeah. So, you will not be surprised when you eventually see yourself activating that seed <laughs> that has been planted. Because that's how the devil works. So we see <clears throat> a couple more examples. Like in... Okay, actually, how do we... There is one big scene or one big area that I saw that I felt I needed to share with us, which is in the whole discussion of temptation. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 6 to 10, which is an area that um, is, is, a, is a mindset that will also help us overcome temptation of sin much more. And that is this word, contentment. So, Bible says, now, godliness with contentment is what? Great gain. I was wondering, why did he say godliness with contentment is great gain? And I realized that there was... There was something before that. So it says, um, let's go to verse 5. It says, using wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of what gain from yourself, withdraw from such withdraw yourself. So people, Paul was addressing people who used godliness for gain. And we are very in tune with that today. That our faith is littered with people using godliness for what? Gain. And don't say it is them, those who are buying private jets, or those who are eating church money. It's not just that. Using godliness for gain can also be from ourselves in service of church because we want to gain acceptance because it's cool to be in church. It's cool to do ministry. So I want to be cool, so I do ministry. <laughs> that is using godliness for what? Gain. Then it goes to the next verse and says what? Now, godliness with contentment is what? Godliness itself is the gain. We don't use godliness to gain something. Godliness itself is what? Gain. It's not just gain. It's what? Great gain. Amen? Next verse. And having food, okay, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain that we carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with this we shall be content. Continue. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. So, what makes it easier for you to fall into temptation is what? Our desires. <laughs> the desire for something that is not in you. 
something that you think you don't already have is what gives you the higher propensity to fall into temptation. If you see this, um, there is this movie, Hustle, about professional con artists. When they want to con people, they look for, they call them, when they are trying to get a mark, when they get a mark, what do they do? They research on the person and they find that person's desires. <laughs> and they use that person's desire to con that person because they know that that person. So even the last one, the last one I watched, the person was in the mission to find con artists. So he, he, was, he, he knew he, he was looking for them. <laughs> And they conned him. <laughs> so, because he was, they found out that he was, a, he, was, he was a big real estate guy. He loves, he collects, he buys, in the whole city, he had so many lands, so many properties, and all. So they used that to con him. They made him buy a land that didn't really have gold, but made him think it had, it had gold. And he paid so much money for that land, and there was nothing there. So, because that area was his what desire. He had so much desire in that direction. And that was what was used to tempt him. So, that is why contentment is a very key, key character of the spirit that we must have. Contentment is not being lackadaisical. Contentment is not being non-ambitious. Contentment is not settling for less. Contentment is neither of these things. Contentment is knowing that I am complete in him. It is that knowing that I am complete in Christ. Once you have that understanding, there is nothing outside of you that would add to you. So everything outside of you becomes a tool or a means to an end. It is not adding to you. You don't feel, so if that thing is not there, you don't feel any less. If that thing is there, you don't feel any more. <laughs> that is contentment. We were having a discussion in the refinery and I asked the question. I said, what's the difference between the guy sitting in the White House that is a believer and the guy in Iraq dodging bomb that is a believer? What's the difference? What difference does their salvation make in their experiences? With their salvation, I mean, if both of them were unbelievers and they just gave their life to Christ in the same situation, <clears throat> what would their salvation, how would their salvation make their experiences different? The guy dodging bomb in Iraq <laughs> and trying to save his family, and the guy sitting in the White House, ruler of the world. What difference? Is the, is the salvation and our identity in Christ meant to... So, once that guy in Iraq gets saved, is his life supposed to now <laughs> automatically start... He starts hammering in, the, in Iraq. <laughs> Are they, the two of them... Is one better than the other? So, what's the leveling ground? What's the difference between the two of them? Or what's the, what's the common thing between the two of them? Christ. Christ becomes the leveling ground. That, the truth is, that person 
dodging bomb in Iraq can have a much higher quality of life than the person sitting in the White House. What makes their life the life of higher quality? Christ. So, whatever experience, if you understand that I am complete in him, whatever experience I have in, the, in life doesn't add or remove from Christ doesn't add or remove from you. So experiences become... So you look at experiences from the third person. So you're just seeing, okay, this thing that is happening, how do we use it for the glory of God? That's, that's all. Whether in abundance or in suffering, whichever. Whatever experience it is, everything conforms to Christ. Everything finds purpose in Christ. Amen? So, it says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. Next. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, for which... Some have, have strayed from the faith in their greediness, pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So it says, the key thing here is, have strayed from the faith. Why is money or our desires, why is discussion so critical? Because it is easy for us to now begin to put our faith in those things. That is where the danger is. When you begin to put your faith, your faith is no more in him, your faith is now in things. And we deceive ourselves, when we, or there are people that deceive themselves when they say, okay, my faith is in him. Meanwhile, my faith is in him because of the thing I will get. <laughs> so for the truth, my faith is actually in the thing. But I'm here because him will give me the thing. So if I don't get the thing, my faith begins to... So, that is the danger. So, we must be mindful of this while of temptation. That is a major while of the devil. And it will always go in the direction of your desires what your heart is most desirous of. That is the direction the, the devil will tempt you on. Because when he tempts you there, your faith will shake. You to begin to divert your faith to another direction before you know it. Alright, now, lastly, is Snares, okay, um, I'll just finish with this, and then the bondage of fear. So, fear, let me talk about fear, and then we'll close. Fear is the last one, it's a major one. So, like we all know, fear is the opposite of faith. So, the word faith brings to you, faith, faith anchors your hope on, your faith means that I'm looking at, Christ, the author and finisher of our faith, my faith is in him. Him, what, what it just means is Christ becomes, Christ is my reality. That's what faith is. Evidence of things hoped for, substance of things not seen. Substance of things hoped for, hmm? evidence of things not seen. So, my faith in Christ just means that Christ is my reality. In simple terms. It means that all these truths I have in Christ is my reality. It's my superior reality. Yeah? Now, fear is the opposite. When I begin to see circumstances and I, they become real to you, you start being afraid. When you, when you see, when you hear something is going to happen, 
and or you think about your future, you don't know what will happen. And that thought of uncertainty becomes real to you. <laughs> what what happens? Fear. So fear comes in when anything contrary to Christ becomes your reality. Becomes your superior reality in your mind. Once it becomes real to you, you start being afraid. Because if you are, if, okay, if I tell you, this building, is, this building will collapse now. Is anybody running? <laughs> because you don't believe me. If I tell you this building is going to fall now. It's going to fall now. People are still looking at me. <laughs> because you don't believe it's going to fall now. So you're not afraid it will fall now. You're not trying to run <laughs> for your lives. So, when we believe the lies of the enemy, we start to be afraid. It's fear. Because you are now, the things that enemy will suggest, oh, you're going to die, or something's going to happen, or you're not sure of your future, or whatever it is, in whichever shape or form it would come. Once we, it becomes real. Because the truth is, the things we're afraid of have actually not happened. So there's no evidence. It has not happened. It's something that is still in the air. It's still there. Or it's not even there. It might not even exist. But we have now had put our faith in it. So it means it's now our reality. So instead of calling it faith, we now call it fear. Yeah, I know there's an acronym for it. False evidence appearing real. Yes. That's sound that. So false evidence appearing real. So when these lies become real to you, you become afraid. And that is how the enemy would say, is it puts us in what? Bondage. So you, you see now, what now happens, instead of you, if I told you this building is going to fall, instead of you sitting down here to hear the word, you start running. So you go about running and running away from something that will not even happen. <laughs> and then we end up losing, again, the target, the, the, the target, your what? Faith. You stop believing in the realities of Christ. You stop believing the realities of Christ stop becoming your realities. Because you're now afraid. Amen? So that's why in secondary school, we'll now be seeing plenty, plenty devils. We'll now be seeing plenty, plenty manifestations. People will now be acting very weird. In the night, you'll be hearing people shouting. So all those things will now be happening because <laughs> we believed in all those things. Amen? So I just want us to, in, in closing, we're just going to pray. I mean, these things are, we grow in it. We grow in faith. We grow in, our, in, we grow in him. We grow in our ability to know him and detect the truth. So, and this is produced in us by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit will guide us into all truth. Amen? So the Spirit will guide you into all truth. It will point us to Christ. It will keep revealing our eyes to him, to see him more, to know him more, to understand the intricacies of Christ, to understand how his heart beats, to understand his words, to understand his emotions. And we... These emotions and these words consistently and increasingly becomes our reality of our everyday. So that when any lie comes, we will know and we will put it where it belongs. Amen? Let's just say a word of prayer this evening. I say, Father, thank you for your word. Holy Spirit, guide my heart. Any lie of the enemy that I have believed, open my eyes to it that I might see. Open my eyes to it that I might see. Open my eyes so that I might see the wiles of the enemy, that I might know when he, he comes, and that I might know how to stand against. Let me see you more. Let your realities, let your truth be evident to me. Let it be strong in my, in my, in my consciousness. This concludes this message. 
Thank you for listening, and for more information about the Standpoint Church, visit our social media platform on www.facebook.com slash standpointabj, twitter.com slash standpointabj, instagram.com slash standpointabj, and on soundcloud.com slash standpointabj.